Are your clients asking about the employee retention credit, R&D tax credits, cost segregation, energy credits or deductions, or the work opportunity credit? Do you lack answers or expertise in your firm to serve these specialty tax incentives? Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, TriMerit, later in the episode. I recently came across a quote about fraud that I really like. It comes from Weiss v. United States, a 1941 case heard before the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and it was written by Edwin R. Holmes. It reads, The law does not define fraud. It needs no definition. It is as old as falsehood and as versatile as human ingenuity. Now, I don't know if the first part is technically true. Maybe the law didn't define fraud in 1941. And I don't know if I agree that fraud doesn't need a definition. At the very least, a definition is helpful. I do agree and like the bit about how fraud is as old as falsehood and as versatile as human ingenuity. Fraud is everywhere, happening all the time. It's probably been around since our ancestors were hunting and gathering. Nowadays, it comes in many forms and its only limits seem to be how creative and brazen someone is willing to be. So it's tough to get your head around just how much fraud is happening out there at any given time. Fortunately, there are some people out there trying to get their heads around it. And a recent paper they wrote tried to pin it down. And spoiler alert, it's a lot. If you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, visit earmarkcpe.com. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. This is Oh My Fraud, a true crime podcast where the devil is in the details instead of someone's heart and soul. I'm Caleb Newquist. And I'm Greg Kite, and I, the devil is in both my heart and my soul. <laughs> Taking up per- permanent residence. It's a, yeah, it's, it's not a, it's not a vacation rental. It's more of a long-term situation. <laughs> <A> long-term rental. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Greg. You've done such and a he's, 180s. And, he's not, and that motherfucker's not getting his deposit back. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Good. Um, Greg, have you ever been a victim of fraud? Like, did you ever try to help a Nigerian prince or over email or, <laughs> or lose a bunch of money at a three card money table or something like that? Um, I, I've never been defrauded per se. I I'd say at the worst I've been bamboozled. Like, uh, yeah, like I was in the Philippines last December and I paid about 10 times the going rate for what was supposed to be a taxi, but ended up just being a really shitty Uber. (laughs) Uh, so, so stuff like that's happened to me, but again, I don't know if I, if I would define it as fraud. I, I think it was just people taking advantage and naivety but but who knows maybe that does creep into the area of fraud i i will say this the company i work for has been the victim of fraud and you and i together have decided that we're too scared to talk about the six hundred thousand dollars that somebody took from my employer in a not so sneaky way uh, Wait, but so yeah I, are I mean, we too I, scared I, <laughs> I thought you were too scared you're like am i <laughs> i'm not i'll oh. talk about it well, not on this episode. In enough allegedly, we'll just say allegedly enough that I think we can get al- away with it. Allegations. Yeah. Like, we'll have the <laughs> oh my fraud lawyers look at it and make sure that it doesn't, you know, get into the the, the libel or uh, slander. slander area. Yeah. All right. Anyway, sorry to throw you off track there. So you've <laughs> never, so like, for example, like nobody, uh, like you never had any um, unapproved uh, transactions hit your bank account or a credit card or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I think I did a long, I kind of vaguely remember something a long time ago where somebody bought like some kitchen equipment and like a, a, a wedding dress on one of my cards, but <laughs> oh it, yeah, but, but it didn't, it didn't take because like the credit card company was like, yeah, those were fraudulent charges and they reversed it. So I, you know, a victimless wow. crime, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody got a wedding dress. I guess so. And some kitchen equipment. Hopefully they're cooking themselves a nice, uh, a nice buffet for their wedding. Yeah. I mean, maybe I'm overstating this, but again, maybe I'm not. Uh, but I think virtually everyone has been a victim of fraud at some point or another, even if it's just something small, like again, somebody buying 
you know, somebody got your credit card number and yeah. they went to, you know, they they withdrew 500 from the ATM and before it got shut off or something yeah. like that. Bought some gas. And, and there was and I'm not saying there wasn't hassle when that stuff happened. Sure. But there, there wasn't a like a financial consequence to me of that yeah. happening, which is fortunate. I feel fortunate for that. Right. Right. That's that's a fair way to put it. Like like when your bank kind of makes you whole and banks almost always make you whole. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah, that that was fine. Like maybe I'm not a victim of fraud, but we're kind of victim. I guess maybe the bank is a victim of fraud. I don't. I, I yeah, know. yeah. It wasn't ultimately it, who bears that cost. I mean, listen, I don't, I don't have a a, a LifeLock subscription, so <laughs> that's it. That's the true measure of how bad someone's been a victim of fraud. Is it to the point where you got a LifeLock subscription, then you got screwed? I, for yeah. me, it's just been, just been a little, you know, just like some fraud confetti thrown at me but it didn't really sure. get in my hair right yeah but i think when you think about cybercrime and like bank hacks and whatnot it just feels like everybody's been touched by it in some yeah. way yep yeah there are so many fraud stories out there uh we'll definitely never run out of news stories for episodes of this podcast uh i'm more worried about me not wanting to work anymore than i am about fraud not happening anymore yeah, I, I kind of feel the same way. Man's desire to rip off widows and orphans is going to long outlive my work ethic. <laughs> yeah, well, no. well put, well put. <laughs> but on this podcast, we we've joked um, we've joked a few times that we'll, we we will never know who the smart fraudsters are because the smart ones never get caught, right? Yeah, and I and I think the fraudsters that don't get caught. I don't know if we've said this exactly, but they're also incredibly lucky too. And I, I guess I got to thinking about Bernie Madoff and his Ponzi scheme. And he carried that fraud. He carried that on for like 20 years, right? Over 20 years with virtually no one knowing about it. Yeah. And I mean, obviously people knew about it in his inner circle, but <clears throat> the outside world, nobody knew about it. And he got lucky in a couple of ways. The Securities and Exchange Commission ignored Harry Markopoulos. He was the financial investigator who first blew the whistle on Madoff. They totally ignored his, you know, his warnings about yeah. this. Said, and hey, and, go look into this. And I would say that's lucky because that's super lucky. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and what ultimately took down his Ponzi scheme was the largest economic collapse since the Great Depression. <laughs> right. Right. It took it took an incredible like global amount of bad luck for everyone for it to to wipe out his good luck that he'd had over the last yes, 20 years. Right. And I guess what the point I'm trying to make is that there is fraud going on all the time that people just don't know about it. Absolutely. Like like fraud's going on now. Yeah. Like why we're talking. Like right yeah. now. Yeah. And because we don't know about it, we don't really have a good sense of just like how widespread its effects are. Yeah, and and I I remember. I mean, if we're t talking about fraud quotes, I can't remember where I saw it or who said it, but it was something along the lines of, "If these people weren't, if these people committing fraud weren't so greedy, they wouldn't get caught." Which I think is hilarious because <laughs> what else are they being if they're committing fraud but being <laughs> greedy? But but I get what the, the the point is. It's like if they if they just didn't go harder and harder into their fraud. Right then they could have kept it going indefinitely. Indefinitely. And that's, and, and that's the thing. We see, I mean, even, you know, we've talked about this. It's the uh, it, it's one way to look at your financial statements and look at any vendor and make sure that they're not growing like in, in huge leaps and bounds year to year, just vendor to vendor, because that's a, that's a reasonable, that, that's something you need to look into more closely that might be a, a, a something that indicates the fraud's happening. Uh, and that's because you can see in these cases that people will start stealing at a literally exponential rate yeah. once they once they're going. Oh, I didn't get caught stealing, you know, a hundred thousand. So next year I'm going to do two hundred thousand. Next year I'm going to do four hundred thousand, and that's how that's how it goes. Yep. So there's this new paper by Alexander Dyke of University of Toronto, Adair Morse of the University of California at Berkeley. And Luigi Zingales, I think I'm saying that right, of the University of Chicago. And they attempted to quantify how pervasive corporate fraud is. And Greg, okay. do you have any guesses 
as to what the name of their paper is. Uh, let's see, a paper that it's attempting to quantify how pervasive fraud is. Um, my guess is it's called uh, We Bought a Lot of Beer with the Grant Money We Were Supposed to Use Studying Fraud, which demonstrates the ubiquity of fraud. Is that is that it? Did I get it? Yeah. Nice. I, I wish I wish that was the name of the paper. That's... <laughs> Academia we, could use we, a little bit of yeah levity. We right? we de- we defrauded the Illinois uh, Board of Academics who was panning out grants and well this would be this would be an international oh academic oh, yeah. scandal this would be, because yeah. of the University of Toronto. Oh right, that'd be a big thing. anyway. <clears throat> that really no. that really proved their point. It would yeah no no. The, sadly, the the name of the paper is how pervasive is corporate fraud? Oh, well, <laughs> mine's better. It is. I agree. Anyway, so the way these guys explain it is they use the old tip of the iceberg adage. You know, the idea that the tip of an iceberg is the part that's above the surface of the ocean that we, the doomed passengers of the Titanic, can see. It's small. It's relatively harmless looking. And we figure if we keep a safe distance away from it, we'll be fine. Right. Right. But what we should all really be worried about is what lurks beneath yeah well i think that's that totally makes sense because the because you should be more afraid of the fraud that goes undetected yes and why is that greg because because if it goes undetected it's it's the stuff that's detected means that it's also stopped stopped yep and the stuff that's undetected you continue to get it's yeah it's like uh it's like the the fruitcake fraud where yeah. they, they kept going, we're doing our best and we're still just not getting out of these mediocre results. What is happening here? And and it was like, oh, oh, we've been this guy's been stealing butt tons of money from us all the time. Yep. So yeah, you wanna you don't you don't want it to go I mean, that's the whole thing. If it's underneath is undetected, and undetected fraud is what's gonna continue to right. to uh it's the cancer on your business that you need to root out. Right. So in other words, the iceberg that's below the surface, we don't know anything about it until it strikes when we're least expecting and it sends us to an icy, watery, but very romantic death. Right. And as we kind of just established, that's how fraud is. Yeah. You, you yeah. probably won't even get the opportunity to be f- painted like one of Jack's French girls. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I think you mentioned the fruitcake story. Uh-huh. Uh, I've lost, I don't know what episode it is. Episode. Episode Christmas time. Yes. There you go. <laughs> Christmas special episode. Yeah. <laughs> that one. That's a good example of where the, the fraud undetected there. What it was having an impact on that business and people were making decisions yeah. based on circumstances that they thought were real, but were actually a circumstance of circumstances of fraud. Right. Well, and, and also it brings to mind, uh, Dixon, Illinois with Rita Crundwell yeah, where, right. Because that, because how was didn't that one go on over twenty years? Yeah, it was over twenty years. Yeah, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and and do you remember where there was the there was a city of comparable size not too far from Dixon where yep. they're going? We're doing great. What's the, <laughs> yeah. why, why does Dixon have to borrow What's all Dixon's this money? Problem, right? Jeez. Exactly. And it was like, well, is, I mean, same kind of thing. They're, and they're like, going, we yeah. don't know. I guess government's complicated. And it was like, oh no, uh, the lady who who is running this quarter horse empire that doesn't that shouldn't need a fifty thousand dollar a year job is still at your fifty thousand dollar a year job every day because that's how she's feeding her quarter horse empire that's right so in their paper dyke morse and zingales mentioned that studies have tried to do this before with various methods but these guys came up with a clever new way to estimate it they used one of the most infamous events in the history of american business the failure of Arthur Anderson. This episode of Oh My Fraud is sponsored by Trimerit. It seems like every week a new questionable ERC mail pops up offering small businesses a way to get $26,000 from the government for each one of their employees. We've all seen Twitter ads, Facebook ads, ads in podcasts, ads on Instagram, ads on TV shows, and I even personally know a guy here in Utah who's been charged with fraud for false ERC claims totaling $11 million. 
these questionable ERC mills are coming hard after your clients. If they haven't reached them already, they will soon. And based on the stories I've been hearing from accountants, the IRS will be reaching out to them soon too. This is why when it comes to ERC, it's important to have the right people, the right process, and the right partner. Introducing TriMerit. TriMerit is a team of CPAs, engineers, and attorneys that function as an extension of your tax advisory team. They can help your clients with ERC, R&D tax credits, cost segregation, energy credits or deductions, and the work opportunity credit. And working with them is as easy as one, two, three. One, they offer a no-cost feasibility analysis. Two, they document all tax incentive studies to ensure that your clients meet all requirements. And three, they offer audit representation to ensure your clients aren't left hanging if audited by the IRS. To learn more about adding TriMerit to your team, head over to ohmyfraud.promo slash TriMerit. That's ohmyfraud.promo forward slash T-R-I-M-E-R-I-T. Now, before you finish yawning and decide to listen to another podcast because Stop this you've had podcast. enough of Arthur Anderson <laughs> right. over the last 20 years, just just stay with us. So these eggheads, they use the failure of Arthur Anderson to figure how much fraud is going out there in the big bad fraud world. Uh, but before before we get into their methodology and, and their uh, conclusions, uh, may, maybe you, listener, are new to the fraud space or maybe you are a member of Gen Z and weren't alive <laughs> Uh, 20 years ago when Arthur Anderson and Enron happened and you're like tell me more about this Arthur Anderson person who was he and what did he do uh, so real quick Arthur Anderson was a multinational accounting firm based in Chicago everyone knows about the big four accounting firms well it used to be the big five because Arthur Anderson was still around so why isn't Anderson around now I'll tell you why in the late 1990s and early 2000s a lot of Anderson audit clients were doing some pretty dodgy stuff with their accounting but Anderson signed off on the numbers anyways at least in part because they didn't want to jeopardize the lucrative consulting contracts that they had with these clients wait you might be asking Auditors can have consulting contracts with their audit clients who they're supposed to be independent of in both fact and appearance. Well, they used to, but we don't have time to get into that now. And some of these clients, most notably Enron, went bankrupt because people were like, yo, Anderson, what's going on? And Anderson was like, uh, we're sorry. So in June 2002, Anderson was convicted of obstruction of justice for shredding documents related to its audit of Enron because the Security and Exchange Commission cannot accept audits from convicted felons, the firm agreed to surrender its license and its right to practice before the SEC. This, along with a bevy of scandals surrounding it, put the firm out of business, even though the conviction of obstruction was later overturned by the Supreme Court of the United States. And unfortunately, we don't have time to get into that now either. Okay, so now back to the original question. How could these guys use the failure of Anderson to figure out how much corporate fraud is going on that we don't know about? Great question. Great question. Well, we're going to summarize this and and it's it, because it's actually surprisingly simple, but if you want the more complicated explanation, we've got a link to the paper in the show notes and if you've got an extra 2 hours and an extra 20,000 brain cells that you'd like to forfeit for <laughs> reading through this incredibly boring paper uh feel free to click on that link but uh here's 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 the greg and caleb summary arthur anderson fell to shit and they didn't exist anymore so all the old arthur anderson clients had to go find new auditors and because of arthur anderson's failure and because of all the shenanigans of arthur anderson's former clients all these people who used to be Anderson clients were like subject to this incredibly detailed scrutiny, not just by their auditors, but also by investment intermediaries, short sellers, and other internal gatekeepers. And because there was so much suspicion about these clients, uh, the new auditors had even stronger incentives than they would otherwise to uncover any kind of fraud 
committed by these former Arthur Anderson clients. So what the researchers are basing on is like if ever there was a time that auditors were going to find fraud, it would be with these former Arthur Anderson clients. And then they use this thing called the Kalmorogov axiom of conditional probability, which is some math, real math nerd shit, real math nerd shit, which <laughs> they said gave them a very uh, conservative estimates of of not like conservatively low estimates of detection likelihood and then a conservative view of just the pervasiveness of corporate fraud that goes undetected. Yeah. Does it make sense to you, Greg? Like, I mean, I read this thing, believe it or not. I mean, how do you, like, do you feel like, like at a high level, it makes sense? Like, I don't understand the fucking axiom of conditional probability, <laughs> right. to be honest. Right. Be honest I have a you. math degree and I took multiple <laughs> probability classes and I'm sure I studied this axiom at some point, but it's long since been forgotten. But I mean, I think, but the overarching premise is that you have this unique event happen. Mm -hmm. Right. The failure of Anderson. Yeah. You had scores, maybe hundreds, probably hundreds of businesses that had to go out and find a new auditor. Yeah. And that that just doesn't happen every day. Right. And the circumstances around that failure would in, would would cause people to be suspicious because of the nature of the circumstances. Yeah. And so and therefore detecting fraud it's more likely that fraud would be detected in the aftermath of that f failure that's what they're saying yeah and i i would say well because there's two things that are true and and we know this fresh eyes catch more bullshit so that that's just <laughs> is that the, the expression yeah is that that's, an expression that was that's that's actually in the auditing standards uh ah. the, the codified auditing so you can, you can look it up but the uh so, so you've got not just fresh eyes, but you've got people. It, it, the, the whole idea is if ever there was a time when frauds would get caught, it's in that unique yep. circum set of circumstances after the failure of Arthur Anderson. And if nothing else, and I think this is really where these researchers were going, is in no way would there be fewer frauds detected in that, right. in, in that uh, sample that they're looking at specifically. Right. So, the authors used four ways to identify detected frauds. Uh, so, one of the ways was auditor detected frauds. Just plain and simple. The external auditor found cases of fraud with these Arthur Anderson, their, their former clients. Uh, the second one was the SEC accounting and auditing enforcement releases, where the SEC was like, hey, here's some shit that went down. Uh, the third way was financial misreporting, not due to simple clerical errors. Uh, in other words, that's when one of these companies would would go through the process of restating their own financial statements. Uh, and then the fourth one is all securities fraud under SEC Section 10B-5. So, Greg, correct yes. me if I'm wrong here, but it seems to be that they are casting a wide net in terms of what constitutes fraud. Yeah, they're and and even arguably they were looking at all of these different ways. This is how I read the paper. They're looking at all these different ways to identify detected frauds. And again, they're going for a conservative approach, so they're trying mm -hmm. to find the one or the the combination of factors that really they can they can feel like they've got a very solid case for making the conclusions that they're coming to in in the paper right the authors wrote that quote our estimates represent an upper bound for the detection likelihood which implies that our estimates of unobserved fraud are conservatively low so whatever they're saying they're like going this is like at minimum what we're not seeing that's what they're mm. trying to go for is it's like everything was so conservative there's no way you can shoot down our conclusions because it's at least this much then they conclude fraud is indeed like an iceberg with significant undetected fraud beneath the surface near far wherever you are the fraud will go on
Okay, so how much fraud is below the surface? Keeping in mind that they were observing data in the aftermath of Anderson's demise, the authors estimate that in an average year, 10% of all large public corporations are committing a misrepresentation, an information omission, or another misconduct that can lead to an alleged securities fraud claim settled for at least $3 million. And they have a 95% confidence interval between 7 and 14%. Yeah, which And blah, blah, blah. They, they're just saying their whole thing is 10%. I think the big takeaway, 10% of large public companies yeah. are, are committing some fraud. And they're 95% confident about 95% confident if you if you expand the interval. If you remember your if if you go a little bit above and a little bit below 10%, they're like, oh, we're super confident in this range. Yeah. Okay. They also estimate that 41% of companies misrepresent their financial reports, even when ignoring simple clerical errors. Now, the authors do say. Quote, we do not want to conclude from this estimate that each year 41% of large corporations commit a severe misreporting. To reach this conclusion, we would need to we would need some more substantive filters to eliminate inconsequential misreporting. Nevertheless, this estimate does not bode well for the US auditing system. In spite of all the regulation, roughly half of the US financial statements suffer from misreporting more serious than pure clerical errors. That's a big damn deal. And again, seems like definitely, even if it's not fraud, that's that's unquestionably audit failure. If two out of five financial statements are just wrong, that's (laughs) whether it's fraud or whatever. That's they're, they're at least pointing out a massive audit failure. Yeah. The authors then compared their main finding that 10% of large public companies uh, committing some kind of fraud uh, with the academic literature. And they found that, uh, quote, our estimate is at the low end of the pervasiveness of corporate fraud found in the literature. So there, like you, you said at a minimum, this is probably what's happened or this is their estimate at a minimum 10% of these large, the large businesses. And there's a technical definition that I'm not going to get into, but like, don't (laughs) 10% of those businesses are committing some kind of misrepresentation and that's and that in and of itself that's huge that seems like a lot that's ridiculous yeah okay and so to take the numbers a bit further here they figured that the detected frauds account for one-third of all the cases and cost 25 percent of the company's market value okay gotcha so so to to restate that for every sure. fraud detected, there was two frauds that went undetected. Right. So yeah. next point. Undetected represent two-thirds of the cases, and the cost is 10.9% of the market value. Okay, which kind okay. of makes sense also because if it's undetected, again, it was probably people not getting greedy with their greed and keeping stuff on the down low so it's not hurting the business as much. Right. But the stock may still underperform. Yes. Hence the cost of 10.9%. It may still underperform because there's a short seller out there who's kind of like, yeah, I know what they're doing. Yeah. And like, right. But it, it isn't wide. It isn't widely known. Right. Right. Un, uh, virtually undetected. Yeah. Right. That makes sense. There okay. might be a hint, a whiff of it going around, but right. nobody's, nobody's nailed them. Right. Okay. The average cost of the fraud is 15.6% of the company's market capitalization. Right, and that's like the weighted average between their detected yep. frauds and their assumed undetected frauds. Yep, and you can double check their math in their paper if you I want. Did. Yeah, they, I you did, you did, I, I knew it. I don't I know Kalamagorov's conditional axiom of probability, but I can do some badass weighted average. Goddamn arithmetic. It's, if it's eighth grade math or less, I kick ass at it. All right, awesome. So. If 10% of the companies are committing fraud, remember, that's the big finding. Yep. That means that the cost of fraud is 1.6% of equity value per year. Okay? Gotcha. That that makes sense because if yep. they're saying fraud- 15, 15.6%. We'll round it to 16%. Right. That's the loss. And 10% of the companies are committing fraud every year. So you take one-tenth of 16% and you get 1.6%. Bingo of the equity value. That's seventh so, grade math. I'm so on top of this. It is decimals, or as they said in the Incredibles, 
Demisols. Math is math is math. <laughs> so in 2004, the total market cap of the U.S. equity market was $16 trillion. And so whew, that puts the annual cost of corporate fraud somewhere around $254 billion in 2004. Back in 2004. Back in 2004. Yeah. And here from the paper, quote, combining fraud pervasiveness with existing estimates of the costs of detected and undetected fraud, we estimate that corporate fraud destroys 1.6% of equity value each year, equal to $830 billion in 2021. Right. So the big takeaway is 10% of businesses are committing fraud and the loss for shale for really for shareholders is $830 billion in 2021. This episode of Oh My Fraud is sponsored by LiveFlow. Did you hear the news? LiveFlow just launched a new consolidation product. LiveFlow power user Beth Melcher of MoneyFit said that LiveFlow's consolidation is saving her team 15 to 20 minutes per client every week and eliminates the use of formulas. LiveFlow's automated multi-entity consolidation is simple to use. You can easily map multiple unmatching charts of accounts from multiple QuickBooks online companies into one standardized report. And once it's set up, LiveFlow works its magic, updating the consolidations automatically in real time, so you can focus on analysis using instantly updated data across entities. LiveFlow can even consolidate financials that are in different currencies, and the possibilities don't stop there. LiveFlow empowers you with flexible, powerful reporting tools to create customized dashboards that meet your specific needs. Build executive presentations, cash flow forecasts, and more with just a few clicks. Stop grueling over manual consolidation reports and to get 25% off your first three months, be one of the first 10 listeners to head over to ohmyfraud.promo slash LiveFlow. That's ohmyfraud.promo forward slash L-I-V-E-F-L-O-W. Now, Caleb, one thing I can appreciate about all this complicated academic research crap is that the authors attempted a cost-benefit analysis. Ooh. Uh, yeah. So, in other words, they tried to put these massive numbers into a context that maybe a CFO or some corporate executive might be able to use in some practical way. And how exactly did they do that? Great question. They used the often maligned legislation known as Sarbanes-Oxley. And if you're not familiar with that, it's also known as Sarbox and Sox if you're lazy. And it was passed into law in 2002 in response to the flurry of corporate and accounting scandals, including Enron and Arthur Anderson and WorldCom and others. Uh, all those preceded this legislation, and like many other things in this episode, we can't get into the nitty-gritty details of Sarbanes-Oxley right now. However, with the passage of Sarbanes-Oxley came a wave of new regulations uh, with which public companies had to comply, which naturally, of course, led to higher compliance costs. And these new costs to comply were considered by so many people to be overly, how shall we say it, costly and burdensome. And yes. uh, and I and this is a direct quote: "Giant pain in my ass." Uh, and you may you may even remember if you're a, a studious listener of Oh My Fraud that back in episode twenty four, Michael costs the chief executive of the Cost Corporation expressed his doubts about complying with all the additional rules that were required by Sarbanes-Oxley. Conversely, there have been many fervent defenders of Sarbanes-Oxley since its passage over 20 years ago, the feeling being that requiring companies to regularly assess the quality of their internal controls for auditors of public companies to have their work closely inspected, among many other new regulations, has greatly benefited investors. So maybe reasonable people can disagree, but I think it's fair to say that using the cost of Sarbanes-Oxley is a perfectly fine way to do a cost-benefit analysis. Do you, really do you agree, Caleb? Paper? 
Do you, I'm asking you, Greg, do you really feel that way? I wrote those words. <laughs> I put the words in your mouth. I, I will speak more of this in the lessons learned. Okay, very well. I would say, here's what I would say. Yeah. If I may. Please. <clears throat> The, the the cost of implementing Sarbanes-Oxley uh, was <laughs> costly. Exorbitant. Yeah, yeah. It cost people a lot of money, and people were plenty upset about it. Yep. And so it seems, it seems appropriate that this would be the focus of the cost-benefit analysis. Yeah. I mean, you could certainly do worse. You in terms of, yeah no I th- I think it's a great way to look at it especially once you quantify what you think the loss uh, due to fraud is among public companies yeah it's a great it's a great little math problem to do at the end of your very rigorous and nerdy uh, research <laughs> and calculations right. right and as a matter of fact Caleb if I yes. may the authors themselves even say this. As an illustration of the wide applicability of our estimates, we sketch how it can be used for a cost-benefit analysis of SOX. Note that reducing agency costs is only one of the benefits of SOX. So, after reading that quote, it's probably worth noting here uh, exactly what agency costs are. Confession. I did, I was not familiar with this idea of agency costs before. It's yeah, it's this. not it's not the extra amount that you have to pay a travel agent to <laughs> put together your dream vacation. Southern Italy dream vacation. Okay. It's good. Oh. The easiest way to think about agency costs yeah. as we're talking about it is that agency costs is when someone who's not an owner of a company, for instance, let's say a manager, maybe they own just a little tiny chunk, but for the most part, they're not mm-hmm. a major investor in the company. Just think of them as a manager. So that person has both the opportunity and the authority to make decisions or take actions for the company. And these decisions are shit. And because of their shit decisions, they cost the owners and shareholders money. That's agency cost. For example, if management conducts an elaborate fraud to pump up the company's share price and then sells a bunch of shares for millions of dollars only to have the fraud be found out, which in turn costs the shareholders millions of dollars when the share price tanks, that is very much exactly an agency cost. Make sense? Makes sense. Awesome. So back to the paper. The authors cite a survey from 2009 that, quote, used survey data collected by Finance Executives International to arrive at an estimate of $3.8 million of compliance with Sarbanes-Oxley costs per firm with costs increasing in the issuer's size. So, They multiplied that $3.8 million in average compliance costs by the number of publicly traded firms in 2004, which was, if you're playing along at home, 5,226 companies. And that multiplication problem obtained an annual compliance cost for Sarbanes-Oxley of $19.9 billion in 2004. Make sense? Perfect sense. Nice. So here's what these eggheads say as a conclusion. You like you like the eggheads. I, I do because that's really <laughs> feels right to me. So big brains. these big brains. These damn eggheads are saying this because <laughs> you remember that their estimate was that their conservative estimate was that ten percent of firms engaged in fraud. You remember that? Yep, I do. Yes. Mm-hmm. So what they say is that if Sarbanes-Oxley resulted in only 9% of firms engaging in fraud instead of the 10%, that 1% reduction would drop the total cost of fraud by $25 billion. Now, if you also remember, they just estimated that compliance cost with Sarbanes-Oxley was right around $20 billion. Right. So if Sarbanes-Oxley reduces the cost due to fraud by $25 billion and it only costs you $20 billion to do it, you just came out in the black 
by five, five billion, billion dollars. Five billion. Exactly. Yeah. So okay. that's the cost benefit calculation that they made. Right. And the authors, they write with this estimate, we can easily assess what is the minimum level of, of effectiveness in terms of reduction in the probability of starting a fraud that any system of controls needs to achieve to justify its cost. All right, so let's recap, shall we? Yes. All right. The authors estimate that for the period they examined in the wake of Arthur Anderson's failure, two out of three corporate frauds went undetected. Check. 41% of large public companies misreported their financials in a material way. Check. 10% of firms were committing securities fraud. Crazy, but okay. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And this resulted in an annual cost of $254 billion to investors. Yep, they said that. Okay, and if you extrapolate this out to 2021, they estimate the annual cost of corporate fraud to be $830 billion. In 2021 dollars. Right. The authors conclude, quote, these figures project a dismal picture of the effectiveness of financial auditing pre-SOX. Now, they do confess <laughs> that whether SOX reduced or eliminated the problem, our paper is unable to answer. Yet the magnitude of the problem suggests that some action was warranted. Greg, what do you think of that? I, I, I do agree that some action was warranted, but I am jaded about uh, government and legislation <laughs> and that, that the it's more we have to do something because we have a lot of people who are really upset right now and if we do nothing then we can't justify our existence as legislators so i i i think it was warranted i don't think congress could not have done anything but i definitely resounds with me with what they say whether sarbanes oxley did anything at all their paper is actually that's outside the scope of their paper yeah But remember, when they did the cost-benefit analysis, they found that if a new regulation, i.e. Sarbanes-Oxley, could reduce the probability that a fraud would be started by just 10%, its cost would be fully justified. So, Greg, (laughs) did we learn anything? Uh, I would say that it, if I didn't learn anything, it made me think about a couple things okay. uh, pretty deep, which okay. that's learning, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. So wh- one, of the, one of the things that, that really stuck in my brain was that these researchers estimated that the corporate fraud uh, eliminated $830 billion of shareholder value in 2021 now caleb you also know that i am locked into the uh, acfe and their biannual report to the nations yes Um, and and what's interesting is the acfe estimated not 830 billion dollars they estimated 4.7 trillion dollars was yeah. lost to fraud globally in 2021, which is the same year that they, you know, uh, extrapolated their data to to get it in 2021 dollars as well. So yes. we've got one set of research that says 830 billion, and not only that, those guys are saying that that's a very conservative number, mm-hmm. but we've got this other respected group that says 4.7 trillion. Okay. So with that my accountant brain kicks in and I go, how can we reconcile these two very divergent numbers with one another? And what's weird is I think you can kind of do it because if you just look at it, the ACFE's number is about eight times larger than what these researchers estimated. So we've got an eightfold difference between the numbers, but the authors of the paper explicitly and repeatedly state that their estimates are are conservative which which brings me to think of whether like to make a judgment as to whether or not i think that the acfe is being conservative or liberal with their estimation 
And again, being jaded, I go, oh, well, the ACFE kind of has a dog in this fight and they want it to look like, you know, th their whole thing is to help support the forensic auditing uh, profession. So they want to go, oh, my gosh, the the problem so with much fraud, fraud, it's huge. So you, much fraud. You really need our services where the researchers were just trying to come to a conclusion. So. I would say, so, so, which is also very interesting when you look at this, because a, a reportedly conservative number versus a uh, a number that feels like it's probably not so conservative. It's a marketing data point. It's a mar. It is, and it really is kind of yeah. comes out of their ass because yeah. if you even look at the ACFE's methodology, they really go to certified fraud examiners and go, "Hey, about how much revenue do you think is lost to fraud every year?" And they're like, they scratch their head for a minute and go. Your best guess is fine. Five percent. I say five percent. It's five. It's yeah. about five percent. And it, you know, and I think they do some, you know, some statistical gymnastics to to you know to verify that that number is at least in the realm of reasonableness, uh, or at least th that they feel like they can justify it as such. So, so with that, you still have to go. Okay, so who's right? But what what's interesting is if you look at the paper. They're only looking at shareholder wealth for U.S. publicly traded companies. Right. But what the ACFE is looking at is it's looking at glo what's, what was lost globally, not just for public companies, but for private companies as well. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and the, the, the paper, they did a real shitty job of defining fraud. <laughs> uh, but I think, and tell me if you think I'm wrong. Yeah. But I think digging through the numbers like we did, they're primarily looking at financial statement fraud. Yes. I think that that's but but the ACFE is not just looking at financial statement fraud. They're looking at embezzlement, like asset misappropriation, mm -hmm. which most people relate that to embezzlement, but it can also be people stealing inventory or you, you know whiskey. <laughs> Exactly, or or even like you know using a company truck and that burns gas. That kind of stuff yep. can be right. uh, asset misappropriation. <laughs> also, uh, corruption, uh, aka see the Fat Leonard podcast. Um, so the ACFE looks at all of those. So if you if you start to look at okay, the if you look at just the U.S. and just the public companies and just financial statement fraud, that yeah, that seems reasonable. That that would be one eighth of global fraud for not just financial statement fraud, but also embezzlement and corruption. And if anything, I think that that, that very much, I mean, just again, I, I tried to do some math to verify that. And I think it's very justifiable that if you take the, the, the researchers conclusions about loss due to fraud and you try to uh, try to take that to a global level for all sorts of fraud. It, it really, I think they, the numbers line up pretty good. And I think that mm. that's kind of a gold star in my mind to these researchers, what they're doing, and maybe even more so gold star to the ACFE for not just having a marketing number, but having something <laughs> that I think is, yeah. is actually probably fair, is bad. This episode of Oh My Fraud is sponsored by the South Carolina Association of CPAs, also known as SCA CPA. Hey, Caleb, you know I love diving into a juicy fraud case with you, right? But check this out. There's a place where accountants get together and talk shop and share knowledge about everything accounting related, including stories about untamed financials. Oh, tell me more, Greg. At every single one of my state CPA society events, there's a mountain of practical insights and experience. You get to meet other accountants, share knowledge, and even hear some firsthand accounts of financial intrigue. And here's the kicker, Caleb, you'd be hard pressed to find a better place for networking. I joined my state society as an undergrad during the depths of the Great Recession, and before I graduated, I had multiple job offers, all from firms that I connected with through my state society. Hey, that all sounds pretty good, Craig. But what else does a state CPA society bring to the table? Uh, they bring lifelong professional friendships, networking that'll turbocharge your career, and leadership opportunities. And on top of all that, your state CPA society is an unwavering advocate for you and for the profession. 
State CPA associations keep their fingers on the pulse of the constantly shifting business, regulatory, and legislative landscapes to keep you on the cutting edge and to protect the CPA profession. And as you know, protecting the profession means securing your livelihood. And hey, wherever you're tuning into the podcast from, be it the Palmetto State or some other state with a lamer nickname, there's a CPA association in your corner ready to ignite your accounting journey. If you're ready to find out why CPA Association membership is for you, head on over to ohmyfraud.promo slash SCACPA. That's ohmyfraud.promo forward slash SCACPA. Packed up by this by this paper. Yeah. All right. That was a good one. That's a good one. What uh, else? What else got you thinky? The other thing that got me thinking is that because the whole cost benefit analysis thing, I I don't for as much as they tried to frame it as here's here's something that uh, that C suite officers can use to make decisions. Bullshit. Uh, C suite that you don't have a decision as to whether or not you're going to pay the money to comply with Sarbanes Oxley or not. All that it was is it was it was a big picture again, kind of ivory tower thing of going, hey, let's see if Sarbanes Oxley is wor- was worth it after all. Twenty years later, can we justify the cost that was imposed on corporations with compliance with Sarbanes Oxley? And their whole thing was that Sarbanes Oxley reduced fraud so that it was less than 10% of companies that were committing fraud. And I say, no fucking way. <laughs> That's my, my, my un, unabashed uh, opinion is there's no fucking way that Sarbanes Oxley reduces fraud by, by 10%. Because again, to just back into those numbers, they said fraud had to go from from 10% of all companies down to 9% of all companies, which you go, Oh wait, Greg, that's only a 1% reduction. It's like, no, no, no. That's going from 10% down to 9%. That's 10% of the 10%. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. So it's, so there's no, in my mind, there's no way that Sarbanes Oxley reduced fraud by 10% because here and here's here's how I'm going to back that up and tell me if you agree with me or not but the first off is that is that firms who audit public companies are constantly being fined and censured by the PCAOB for not doing their fucking job at auditing these companies yeah. so they're doing the 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 auditors who are supposed to be enforcing who are who are they're they're not they're not doing what Sarbanes Oxley is telling them to do, which is why the PCOB is pissed off at them, right? <laughs> but <laughs> shut up. Plus, audit firms are incentivized to give unqualified opinions, which is basically mean an unqualified opinion is basically a clean bill of health for financial statements. And yeah. if you're an audit company, you want to give a clean bill of financial health to your clients. Uh, we we might want auditors, we, we might want their job to be keeping public companies from committing fraud. But in my opinion, what they actually do, boots on the ground, is they do the bare minimum to comply with auditing standards to support a positive report for their clients. And that's it. Prove me wrong. And I'm not and listen, I'm not saying the Sarbanes Oxley does nothing. I'm saying that I'm absolutely convinced that there's no way Sarbanes Oxley reduces fraud by ten percent. Yeah, I mean that's 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 that would be a big that would be really big. A ten percent yeah. a ten percent reduction is large. Yeah. And, so, and now, again, so to give these researchers their due, they did say that whether or not it actually reduced it to that extent was not was outside the scope of their yeah, paper. Yeah. Um, and really, but they're they also saying say, that that's but what the I, threshold. But, but I think, but I think honestly, the takeaway, I think the biggest takeaway though, is the bit where they say there's forty one percent of businesses who are 
in 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 a given basically in a given year, but like that you know they they based it on the sample, the sample years, yeah. post Anderson failure. They're saying forty one percent are misrepresenting their numbers, like that right there. That's the indictment of auditing, where you're just like, yeah, <laughs> what is going on? Like, right? How is how like you said two in five are misrepresenting their numbers and they're just getting clean audit opinions. Yeah. That's the thing where they're like, they clearly say this does not speak well of auditing in the United States. Absolutely. But again, but that's the thing is their paper wasn't about the, the effectiveness of auditing. It was about detecting the pervasive. It's about the pervasiveness of fraud. Right. But, but I trying to figure it out that at least for you and I, one of the big takeaways is also, yeah, auditors suck at doing their jobs. Well, yeah, and I think I think it's, are we maybe we're being are we being, are we is this a quibble? Do you feel like the the Sarbanes Oxley bit, like the cost benefit, like I don't know, if, I don't think the paper said this is for CFOs. Like they really just wanted to like illustrate how one could take this number and try to use it in a practical fashion, right? I mean, right. well, it's almost as though. Yep, we we crunched all these numbers and this is what we you know came up with. But can you apply it to real life? That they was that was sure as hell what they tried. tried. They tried. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> right. But you're Greg Kite's not buying it. Nope, I'm not buying it. All right. And and if anything, I would say yeah, I'd say that it it's that maybe the conclusion of their paper is Sarbanes-Oxley wasn't worth it. Maybe. I mean, as as I recall, that's outside of the scope of this paper. Yep, exactly. So, Caleb, what what were some things yeah. that got you thinking based on this paper? So, the the one thing that I kind of learned reading this study, and then also people's reactions to the study, was um, I, you mentioned a little bit is just how they define fraud, right? Like, because that's that's the big question. Is like, well, if you're gonna if you're gonna try to quantify the pervasiveness of fraud, then you have to kind of start with the question. Well, what is fraud? Right. Okay. And how they chose to do that was a little weird and slightly controversial. Yeah. And I mean, by their own admission, they put it right in the paper. They said we were being overly broad and because they want, because they wanted to be conservative, right? They wanted to, they wanted to be conservative in order to account for virtually every instance that could possibly occur. Okay. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, um, for example, uh, I just want to find um, uh, the uh, this actually this actually didn't get that much press press when I was doing the research. Okay, there wasn't that many media that picked it up, but the New York Times picked it up, and um, they got this great quote from uh, a Stanford professor who's also a former SEC commissioner. His name is Joseph Grunfest. Oh and yeah, I feel I, like I I feel like I've said his name before. Anyway, Grunfest, he he told the Times. Quote, the use of the term fraud in the article's title is highly problematic. The authors themselves concede that they use the the word fraud loosely and for simplicity. But events they call fraudulent include alleged frauds that weren't frauds, honest mistakes and differences of opinion about accounting treatment. Calling all these events frauds is like loosely calling a mouse an elephant for the sake of simplicity and then rationalizing the overbroad categorization on grounds that both are mammals. Just as mice are not elephants, alleged frauds are not frauds, and differences of opinion are also not frauds. So, like, this guy really isn't impressed by all <laughs> right. this. <laughs> right. Know, like, take that, researchers. Yeah. And so I think we've talked about this in other episodes. Well, not other episodes, maybe one other episode, where, like, I think there's certain academics who get a, a pretty profound sense of joy when they... <laughs> poke holes in their colleagues or their oh. peers oh. <laughs> in their peers studies. Yeah. And this guy Grunfest seems to be one of those guys because right. he's just like, nah, not impressed at all. Right. I feel like it's, that's the same sort of joy that we feel poking <laughs> holes in these people's research as well. You maybe went, look at this, look at this wonderful cake that you made here. The icing's wrong. Do it again. We're like, we're, we're, we're Gordon Ramsay for these guys. Uh, these guys research paper. So maybe it's not ironclad, but the study is, is interesting. And I mean, we did a whole podcast episode about it. So that's, is that, that's something, is that something? Uh, sure. That's something, Caleb. <laughs> <laughs> 
And one way or another, uh, that's it for this episode. So remember, the only limits to fraud are your imagination. And also remember, if you see an iceberg, get the hell away from it. What's wrong with you? Yeah, exactly. Hey, uh, if you want to drop us a line, send us an email at ohmyfraud at earmarkcpe.com. And Caleb, if people want to get a hold of you, where can they find you? On Twitter at CNewquist and LinkedIn uh, backslash Caleb Newquist. Greg, where are you? Uh, Same thing. Twitter at Greg Kite and LinkedIn uh, backslash Greg Kite. Pretty straightforward. Oh, My Fraud is written by Greg Kite and myself. Our producer is Zach Frank. If you like the show, leave us a review or share it with a friend. Rating the show and leaving reviews helps people find the podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And for the accountants out there, if you listen to the podcast on Earmark, you can get free CPE. I earn so much CPE on Earmark. It's unbelievable. If you're not getting CPE on Earmark, then you're getting CPE wrong. That should be on their website. It should be. At least on their business cards. Yeah. Join us next time for more avarice, swindlers, and scams from stories that will make you say, Oh, my fraud. Oh, my fraud. fraud.